Welcome aboard the USS Aeronome. To become a member of our crew, please visit perfectorganism.com slash support. As a patron of Perfect Organism, you'll receive exclusive perks and early access to content. Incoming audio transmission received. Please proceed to Subdeck 3 to begin playback. Thank you, and welcome aboard. I think we ought to discuss the bonus situation. Right. Brett and right. I, we think we ought to, we deserve full shares, right? right baby? You see, Mr. Park and I feel that the bonus situation is really good. Move, get out of there. To Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast. I am your host, Jamie Prater, and joined by my co-host, Patrick Green. What up? What up? What up? <laughs> and I'm laughing because uh, we see uh, face hugger fingers. I hope that hello. was a hand. I don't know what that was. It might have been phalanges. Phalanges might have been long toes or something. Tentacles. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we are joined by awesome guest. He's not on enough. Dave Gogol, who runs Xenomorphing. Thank you, Dave, for coming on. Sort of impromptu, sort of. But we were planning on a larger roundtable discussing sort of a part two on Ridley Scott. Eh, everybody jump ship. And Dave was like, everybody's I, on I summer don't. Mode, you know? Yeah, everyone's yeah, in summer mode. Happy expenses. to be here. Always your pleasure. Happy well, to be we're here. very excited to have you. <laughs> um, just put those, put those flanges away while we're recording. <laughs> Zip up your pants, Dave. Uh, <laughs> I can't help with this podcast is just that good. <laughs> oh, hey, can I give a quick shout out before we go any further? Because I have a reminder shout on my out. phone. I do not want to forget to clear it. Uh, we have a relatively new listener um, who is one of the biggest in real life alien fans I've ever come across. His name is Mike. He is like the front desk guy at the building where uh, my office is located. And uh, he listens to every episode. He's a super cool dude. He gave me, uh, he lent me his copy of Kingdom of Heaven because he was so uh, ashamed of me for not having seen it already after our first Ridley episode. I know what the fuck. I I know I know. <laughs> and I've seen the first twenty minutes. And, and he I hasn't seen it. Under the Skin, Dave. I haven't. I haven't seen uh, Kingdom of Heaven either. Oh so. fuck me! I know. Wow. I know. So, As a really Scott fan yeah, too, I'm ashamed. Dave, I know. <laughs> as well. I know. It's one well, of the best I things he's ever made. I, I just yeah. It's Thank awesome. Listening and, it's, and I'm Whoopsie. so glad uh, to know you, dude. So thank you. All right. So we're kind of going with the flow here. I mean, we, we've talked about a lot in the last episode. Um, but I guess what we can do is everyone so, sort of knows what me and Patrick have to say. I did watch a recent interview, a rare interview with Ridley Scott done for press at the time of release for Alien. But before we get into that, Dave, what do you think of uh, Ridley Scott? What do you like? What? Like in terms of like, 
who he was back in that day? Like what, what, what thoughts come to mind? Like how do you react to all that? Um, my reactions are kind of weird because I got into Ridley, I guess, kind of late in the game as younger. I was always into the, you know, the, the James Cameron and the, the Wes Craven. And it wasn't really until because I saw Alien after I saw Alien. So when I got my first introduction, then I was like, who the fuck is this? And then I later saw Blade Runner. Um, and really where I really got into him was. Um, was Gladiator. When I realized who did that, that's when I really wanted to go back and look at his catalog. And just an absolute visionary, world builder, um, game changer, you name it. I mean, I really had no idea, too, that he did stuff like Film uh, and Louise and Black Hawk Down. I didn't realize how versatile he was. There was nothing he couldn't tackle. So that's what he, you know, that's my first thought of him. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, to be honest with you, I think my first reaction like like you like i for me i didn't know about alien as we all know we all have these stories we've shared them a thousand times i didn't know about alien until after i had watched aliens and so i find out about alien and then i find i'm like oh uh who's this director you know and then years later i'm a teenager and i'm like oh it's ridley scott so when i was like a late teen i was like okay i'm a fan of ridley scott you know i really you know he's a, a british guy as we all know i and he was essentially a relatively unknown, and now he's a titan of filmmaking. I mean, he can do whatever film he wants to do, even if his films aren't Pretty successful in the, bo- in the box office. He can make whatever film he wants to, essentially. He is a titan. And, I, you know, I, we have another little listener write-in from the first episode, um, which is – also, I should say, for those of you who want a little behind-the-scenes things, my, my kids were in the room for the first 20 minutes of this episode, and they're, they're now gone. So it's about to get pretty fucking raunchy, let me just tell you. Oh, Dave turned his phalange cam back on. Um, Show I, us so, the big so we one. Had a, I want to see the big one. <laughs> what, was that a picture of water? He's all arm. <laughs> it's just an arm. Okay, listen. This is this is not a visual. Oh, medium. gross! Oh, oh it's a face hugger. There he is. I got is. one of those. That's right. There he is. <laughs> so, He's throwing face huggers at himself, ladies and gentlemen. What the hell is this? <laughs> <laughs> he is. So, uh, so we had we had a write-in after the last episode. You know, I, I made this whole thing about how Ridley grew up like twenty feet south of the Scottish border, but technically he was English somebody who actually knows the area better than you know a random american who looked it up on imdb once <laughs> being me uh, told me that actually he's a little bit southern more southerly than that um so although it was, it's northern england it, what you couldn't quite you know throw a football over the border from where he was but yeah but yeah he's british so we are talking about alien but my question for both of you and this is something we didn't get into in the first episode or part one of Ridley Scott, what film of Ridley Scott's did you see after Alien? Don't, that wasn't Blade Runner. Kingdom of Heaven. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Bullshit alert. Good Dave, question. Dave, what, what, what do you think? What's, what's the first thing that you saw by Ridley after Alien? So, well, can, can, I, can I just preface this with a little personal thing? For me, it's hard to say, because yeah, I saw Alien, I'm one of the only people in the world <laughs> Who saw? I'm, I'm probably the only person in the world who saw Alien first, and people always forget that on these episodes. It seems like you're in the the minority. I'm the only person who ever saw them in the right order. I am a golden god, yeah! including people who were alive in 1979. So for me, oh, I'm uh, editing this episode. I have a great soundbite for that one. 
Oh, do you? <laughs> oh, I do. Oh, I do. <laughs> um, so for me, I was I was eight. So I, I don't I don't have any clue what like I, I'm sure I saw I probably saw Legend next, but you know I, I'm not really I don't I'm not quite sure what it was like. Ridley had you know a, a separate kind of reawakening for me as I got older, and I kind of appreciated its films more. But for you know when I was that that young, I'm not thinking about who directed this movie. I'm not even thinking about directors. You know, it wasn't something that I was into. Um, so yeah, so, so that's just my way of saying that I don't, I don't have an answer yet. And I got to think about it. So Dave, go ahead. You know what? I think it was gladiator. Just looking at them. I looked up at the quick timeline of his movie. That was the first one that really, really made me want to look up who the fuck did this. Cause I was obsessed with gladiator. It was, I think I saw it three or four times, four, three or four times in the theater. I thought it was a flawless, perfect movie. And I'm like, who the fuck did this? And then that's when I realized he did um, like them on Louise, um, Legend, which it's just I I never liked as a kid. At you all. didn't like that as a kid? Nope. I have to rewatch yeah. it. I think it's on Amazon Prime. I can't explain it. Interesting. Uh, I did something about it. <sighs> Especially you, Dave. Dating. You like fantasy. You know, Dave know. loves like um, Farscape, and there's a and bunch old. of fantasy that you like. That was the so thing. It's a little shocking so science, to me. Science, science fiction. Science fiction. <laughs> I've always loved, but fantasy, I was always tough with. Like I was always even stuff like Lord of the Rings. I was like, eh. The science fiction it was always my weakness. Like Got the fantasy it. stuff was always like, eh. I'd rather see the futuristic stuff. Well, I'll give it a rewatch, but I. Hated Legend. It was a great. It was gorgeous, but I hated it. Well, here's the thing about Legend. I think Legend attempts to be high fantasy, and it's cheesy fantasy. They call me Jack, ma'am. What a fine fat boy you are, Jack. You don't really mean to eat me, do you, ma'am? Oh, indeed, I do. <laughs> He's trying really hard to create something that's mythological, but there's no real mythology, and it's mostly set pieces and exposition. And Wait, are you shitting on legend right now? I'm, t- I'm, t- I'm throwing down. I'm throwing down facts. These what are the, the facts. Fuck? Dave, I mean Dave. <laughs> Patrick, I love Legend. I love it. I own it. I love it. I will watch it over and over. That is is a Jamie film. It is cheesy, though. It is. It is. It's overly earnest. It's just some of the dialogue is ridiculous. We heard that before. Um, Looks gorgeous. There's some great sequences. I mean, a lot of that, most of it was set. Those forest scenes were all in, uh, I think it was Elstree. They put all. They built all those forests in Elstree, and I know we're talking about Alien, but we're just also talking about the life of, of um, Ridley Scott, and actually the forest in uh, those for that forest set in Elstree caught on fire. It was a big, huge deal. Um, they had live pigeons and birds and doves and all sorts of things. Um, I think Tom Cruise was an odd choice, but that probably why he went with him because he was at, this was after Top Gun, I believe, and he was a big, huge star. The film didn't do well financially; it flopped. Um, but I love it. I do. I love Legend. I think it's unique. It's I need to give it another shot. It's a wonderfully unique film, but I also think it's pretty empty, even though it's trying so hard. Well, I have to correct you. It was not uh, after Top Gun. Top Gun was <gasps> 1986. Legend was 1985, which is when what? I was born. What? And it was born alongside. Me. I had grandkids at that point. Can we just actually can we derail this even further and just say sure. the Top Gun two trailer looks fucking amazing? It does yeah. look good. Yeah, it in. does look good. Oh looks God. really good. I love how it, it's just like it, it, this movie is just about how jets are cool. Yeah. Like, <laughs> 
anything. We're just going to watch fucking <laughs> sonic booms in the desert and dubbed and contrails. Um, it is uh, it's very exciting. Listen, Legend is a movie I haven't seen since I was about 13. But I can tell you this, as a 13-year-old... You're no fan I of that movie. I was really into that movie. <laughs> I watched Legend at least twice a year. So. Yeah, still? I gotta, yeah. Oh, yeah, I on the Blu-ray. Well, you know, so, so it might not have aged well. I'm going to say for me, that was the first, that was my first like real like, oh, that was really Scott. That's the same way that it, that did Alien. But I will, I will agree though with Dave that for me, Gladiator, which what, 2000? Yep. That was for me like a big awakening moment of speaking <laughs> yeah. out who had directed it. Flawless. Because I was just so blown away by it and finding out that it was really Scott and being like, oh, that makes total sense. But I, I wasn't old enough when Gladiator came out or savvy enough to be really thinking about industry things. Like that wasn't really on my radar. So were um, you about, what were you in 2000? Were you 15? I was two, I was two years old. Yes. Yeah, I, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I was a sophomore in high school. So I, I wasn't, it wasn't really like what I was um, thinking about. I was, you know, I, I mean, I was really into movies, but I, I wasn't like, I, what I'm, I guess what I'm saying is I wasn't like on the industry, like on the rumor mill. I wasn't like in a fan group somewhere where I would have known that this was coming out. You know, I would read the entertainment weeklies that my parents would get, but I wasn't like, you know, I was like, Ridley Scott, the director of Alien is directed Gladiator. But when I found out that it was him, it made so much sense to me because it was um, that same exact thing that we talked about in the first of these episodes, that attention to detail, that incredible pacing, that sense of, of like real character in the midst of real action and real emotion. And that wonderful mix of these huge, unforgettable static set pieces with that handheld jerky camera work that's very kinetic. Um, it, it, like, it makes total sense when you realize that that was by him. But uh, another movie that I really love by him that was from kind of the same time period as Black Hawk Down. I think that's like... Oh, my oh, God. oh I had, yeah. Film. Phenomenal film. I had, I had no idea that was him for years because I just thought of him as this, you know, steady pace, thoughtful you know, director. And then I saw Black Hawk down, I don't know how many times. And I finally looked at, I don't know where I saw it. I'm like, that was early Scott. What the fuck? It's like, what? Yeah. It's very different. I mean, wow. I'm like, this guy is a, but all of this being said, you know, we were skipping Blade Runner because, because <laughs> we were instructed to, the real answer for me yeah. is Blade Runner was the next one that I was like, totally aware of and totally in love oh, with. And that was, that was before Gladiator and that shit. I didn't well, see that comment. Yeah, <laughs> a couple There's things. A what, a, what a shocking I, revelation! This is. <laughs> I remember when um, Gladiator came out, and I was in film school at the time. Uh, I just I had finished film school in two thousand one, and I remember reading Roger Ebert's review on Gladiator, and I remember, th- and I really, for the most part, Roger Ebert and I, I agreed with a lot of what he said. Um, although he gave Prometheus him and. Roper gave Prometheus like thumbs up. What the fuck? Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? However, Ebert did not like Gladiator, and I stayed away from it for because of it. And then I forced myself to see it, and I was like, "What the fuck is he talking about? This movie is sublime." Roger. Yeah, <laughs> it was. What'd you say? Oh, Roger. Um, <laughs> I said, I said, Roger. <laughs> and I was like, man, this movie is lyrical. Why don't we turn the video off? Or, or, why, don't we, why don't we? Yeah, we'll turn the video off. That's fine. What, let's, let's turn the video off. This is becoming an issue. So, yeah. So it took me, probably took me a good three weeks, four weeks to actually go see Gladiator. And I was blown away. I thought it was amazing. I thought, I mean, Joaquin Phoenix, 
what's his oh, name? Yeah, Russell Russell Crowe. I mean, Crow. all of it. The it was just the the effects were great, and I remember Ebert saying how terrible the effects were, and blah blah blah. And I just was like, what is he talking about? And <laughs> Yeah, uh, it was disheartening to hear. So, I mean, of course, you're not going to always agree with even someone who might agree with a lot on everything. And I thought it was a really great film. The soundtrack is amazing. It was uh, yeah. I had been introduced to a group called Dead Can Dance. And one of the singers of Dead Can Dance, her name, essentially the voice of Dead Can Dance, her name is Lisa Gerard, And she appeared on the score for... Um, gladiator and i bought it and it was amazing and then she's also on the score for black hawk down another just really ethereal but it's almost like she's got like the voice of the earth like it's there's something like mythological and haunting about her voice uh but yeah it was a really really great film um i'm trying to think like I mean, at that point, when I was in school, I mean, I'd been in film school, so I knew who Ridley Scott was. I had been following him. I was watching all the films, you know, big James Cameron fan at the time. I remember when um, uh, Titanic came out, and I remember talking about it in, uh, I think it was my first year of film school, with a TA and saying we're going to go see it, and everyone was excited for Titanic. I saw Titanic. You were in film school when Titanic came out? 97, yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's crazy. (laughs) Me and Dave are all... (laughs) We're grandpappies. Uh, no, but yeah, uh, I, it was just a really exciting time. And I knew who filmmakers were at that point. I knew like what Ridley Scott's repertoire was. But then there were some films of his that I wasn't as familiar with. And uh, they're like, oh, yeah, this R- Ridley Scott directed this. Like Black Rain, I didn't know that Ridley Scott had directed that. Thelma and Louise, I didn't know Ridley Scott had yeah, directed Thelma it. Yeah, Thelma Louise is a big one for me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that really also put him on the map in a very different way, just because it was before its time. It was... Uh, but he was doing what Ridley Scott does, which is creating, like, directing a film with great characters that happen to be women as opposed to, you know, trying to further an issue. And uh, Thelma and Louise really kind of changed the map for, you know, it was a big, huge movie. It did really, really well, and it starred two women. And, again, there was Ridley Scott was at the helm of it, so it was pretty awesome. I'm not as big a fan of that film just because I don't really connect with it, but it's an amazing film. And, again, it just shows you, like, Ridley Scott isn't, Someone who's like, yeah, well, this is a Ridley Scott film. He does everything. He does sci-fi. Yeah. He does mm-hmm. fantasy. He's done classic film noir. He's done sci-fi noir. He's, I mean, you name it. He's done. He's done like uh, with Kingdom of Heaven. Which man, maybe I'll rent that movie tonight. You guys have got to see. It is just so amazing. Listen, Mike, you have to send. So send another one to Jamie. Send one to Dave. I own it. Thank you. The one that I'm watching. You yes, own it. You say? Yeah. Come on, dude. Well, why the fuck are you gonna rent it? What are you talking about? Oh, did I say rent it? I don't know why I said rent it. <laughs> you did say, you gotta go to the, you gotta go to the video store. I was thinking of, I, think I, was, I was thinking of Black Rain or something because I want to see that. Because I have Black, never seen Black Rain. Black Rain is compared aesthetically to Blade Runner. Um, I know. So I got to see it again. It's Michael I've Douglas. Michael Douglas. I say yeah. Michael. Du- I, I feel like I've seen that, but maybe once years ago. It takes place That's in a- China, I think, or is it Chinatown? I can't remember. <laughs> I think. <laughs> <laughs> That's a movie that I forgot existed for about twelve years, and then Inga posted a, a poster from it and on and on our, our shoulder of Ryan page, and I was like, "Oh my god, I for, I I just forgot that was a movie. I have to watch that thing." Oh yeah, that's a good movie. Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> Michael Douglas, Andy Garcia. Oh my god, Andy Garcia too. That's a good movie. I got to revisit that too. 
but you're right. It, it, Ridley Scott has made a career of moving around. He's very mercurial. You know, like there are through lines in his work that we alluded to a little bit on the last episode in terms of like, um, you know, there are certain aesthetic similarities and, the, and there's certain themes that he likes to kind of circle around and there's certain pacing similarities. But the material that he chooses is really all over the map uh, as a director and also especially as a producer. I mean, he has like 200 production credits, too. He's, he's done so much shit. Um, and it's, it's pretty amazing to see all of that. But what's cool is going back to alien that that existed basically right before the levees broke and he became this Hollywood superstar, right? Cause on the, and you can kind of look back at the shoot of alien and you can see that transition happen. Like you can see him go from being somebody who was a total kind of unknown, um, quantity who like had talent, but nobody really knew if he would deliver things and et cetera. And then the way that he was able to like take control of that shoot, which was in some ways very difficult, and force something out of it that was so good, I think that was why there was basically never again a moment where Hollywood looked anywhere you know other than the direction he was looking in. Like he basically just sealed the deal right then in 1979. Yeah, and he originally wanted no part of science fiction, none at all. So he saw Star Wars. That was it. He was sold. Which is really one of the reasons why he came back to Alien. I know we're not really talking about the prequels, Correct. but uh, Correct. he really believed that Alien had the kind of possibility that Star Wars has. It doesn't. Um, it has a different kind of possibility. But he really, yeah. Star Wars really inspired him to think, hey, I can do that too. But of course, he did a very a much darker version of it. But a couple other films that I, I want to discuss that I thought were really controversial, um, but really good. I thought G.I. Jane was awesome. That was 1997. Mm, yeah. White Squall, I thought was fucking amazing. If you guys haven't seen White Squall, never uh, seen it. It's it takes place. It's it's essentially a story of these boys, these young, of these young boys who are on the ship, and they're sort of it's like almost it's like Jeff summer Bridges, camp. Right? I'm, I'm really yeah, it's Jeff Bridges. Uh, I think Ryan Philippe is in it. The soundtrack is really great. It's really it's a tragedy, but it's really amazing. I mean, is it the most amazing movie ever? No, but it's awesome. Uh, also, I, a movie that very few people talk about, which I think is a fucking masterpiece, which is 1492, Conquest of Paradise. Yeah, and that's it, I, I didn't I didn't see that until I was an adult. And it reunited Sigourney Weaver with with. Um, Ridley Scott for the first time since Alien, and it also came out the year Alien 3 came out, of course, 1992. And Vangelis. Oh, totally Vangelis. The score for that, the score for 1492 should have won an Academy Award. It's that amazing. I wonder if it was nominated, but yeah, 1492 is yeah, amazing. It's long. It. It's like a four-hour movie. It's four hours. Jesus Christ. It's, <laughs> four it's, hours. It's a, it's a beautiful film, though. And that, that's early 90s, right? Uh, 92. 92, yeah. Um, yeah, that, I feel like that was a really, a really uh, productive era for him. Um, yeah, he's he's done a lot of really great shit. Did you guys ever see Hannibal? Oh yeah, yeah. Of course, Good I movie. saw fucking Hannibal. What are yeah. you talking Good about? Movie. Yeah, it's yeah. awesome. It's, so it's, a, it's awesome. A, a movie that. Yes, oh, yeah. exactly. Well, it's it sort of just hampered, I think, by the by the casting change that had to happen. Like, like to me, that that kind of doomed it. A little bit. Oh yeah, um, totally. And it's it's really unfortunate because on its own, it's it's a really effective movie. And I, I think of it the is. Thomas Harris novels, that's probably the best one. It's like the darkest. It's the scariest. Except for the end um, of the novel, I, I've read the book, and I'm thinking this is not Clarice at the end. It just totally betrayed who her character was. But whatever. 
Really? Oh yeah. Don't you remember the end? And spoiler alert, and the well, end of the in the end of the book, she goes off with Hannibal. Like right. like and I just was <laughs> like, what the fuck? Well, and then in the movie they didn't do that. Um, and that was one <laughs> it ends very differently. It yes. does end differently. In fact, that was one of uh Jodie Foster, she was circling the role, and of course she finally left it, but she felt like it wasn't true to her character. She just felt like, and then she was like, yeah, I sort of, this was a one-time deal for me. But yeah, I mean, if Jodie Foster had returned to the role, I think the film would have been more successful. It was a successful film. It made a ton of money. It just probably could have made even more if Jodie Foster would Just a quick sideboard. Did you guys see the Hannibal TV show? Yes. Amazing. Oof. <laughs> Five yeah, stars. Up. A yeah. plus. I, oh, yeah. I, 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 I saw the first really few episodes, up. and then I, like, fell off, and I never went back 100% to it. 100% Google certified. I need to uh, mm. watch it again. I think it's on Netflix, right? I think. There's been a lot of talk that it's going to be returned to. It's yeah, coming back. Been, they've been teasing that shit for years. I'll believe it when I see it. Yeah, that's true. Well, too. I, I mean, it was, so, it was so beloved by everybody, you yeah. know, by, by, by critics. so fucked up. <laughs> Yeah, doing that shit on TV, like I don't easily get uh, uncomfortable. Some parts I'm like, ah, yeah, no, thank you. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, it yeah. was awesome. I, I, and a couple other films, Matchstick Men, two thousand three, really great film starring. Um, oh, I always forget his fish. name. I don't um, know he did that. What's his name? Who's in all the B films now? Uh, Coppola. No, Nicholas Cage. Nicholas Cage, yes. Yeah. But Matchstick Men was awesome. So really, that's so a good, good movie too. And then, yeah, I don't. I've, I, I, I've seen Matchstick Men. I don't think I know. I realized until this conversation that that was really Scott. Really? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I didn't I think I, I didn't know either. That. Yeah, <laughs> that's a really, really, really great film. Just witty. Yeah. Really great writing. Um, big <laughs> twists that you never see coming. Yeah, it's great. And when he has got yeah, a great Sam script. In that too. Yeah, Sam Rockwell and uh, Nicolas Cage. Really, really great. But one thing I did want to mention, just in terms of like the Ridley Scott of, of 1979, I watched this short interview with him. It's probably about 10 minutes. And he's, you know, the, the woman who's interviewing him. You know, I don't know for what channel or where it was, what outlet it was for. But the one thing I did notice about the interview was that Ridley Scott was or is the same man he is today. He was poised. He was focused. He just was everything he is today. Like uh, there's been some discussion about who, you know, he's not the same guy he was. And maybe in some levels that's true, but what to me seems to be the through line or the, or the constant with him, he knows what he's talking about. He commands attention. He gets the job done. And that's exactly what he brought to alien. And uh, so this is kind of like me sort of saying, giving him props just saying you know dude you did a great job and especially coming from the duelist which was a big film but wasn't huge then to the film the size of alien and the sets and the actors and that huge studio involved and that he was able to make a film that is uh, an undeniable masterpiece it's fucking amazing yeah he's the sort of guy who i feel like had he been in a different era would have been like a great um like commander of of like a of like a battalion you know like he just he has a really great ability to um, conceptualize and communicate complex ideas 
using a lot of strengths of a lot of different people and understanding the full totality of processes. Like we talked about previously, like he understands what the technicians need to do their job well. He understands what the actors need. He understands what the studio is looking for. He understands the business aspect really well. I mean, Ridley Scott, at the end of the, at the end of the day, is just as talented, I think, as a business person as he is as a filmmaker. I mean, he's you know made an incredible amount of money on an astounding variety of projects through the years. Even though it's easy to focus on some of his flops because there have been more of those proportionately, I think recently. I mean, he's he's really just made a, a very long career in Hollywood in a number of different capacities um, of consistently making money for major film studios. And that's why they let him do whatever he wants, you know? Um, and, and I think it's, it's a testament to his ability to, like Jamie was saying, see a vision all the way through to the end. You know, like he said in a lot of interviews that, um, or actually, you know, the title of the previous episode was an allusion to something that he said in an interview about this. He said, I don't ever blink, you know? And I think that's true. I, I think he, um, when he gets something in his head that he feels that he that deserves to be in the world and that he knows how to do it, he will do whatever it takes to make that happen. And of course, you know, the, the flip side of that is that he can be very prickly and rather difficult and um, can rub some people the wrong way. But, you know, then again, I mean, you know, we've now spoken with people who have worked with him at length, um, especially on, on the Blade Runner podcast. And I'm thinking of when we were um, speaking with uh, William Sanderson, the guy who played J.F. Sebastian. And he was talking about how Ridley was such a sweetheart and how he was so gentle and so nice and so enthusiastic and so encouraging and basically telling him that he had nothing to worry about, that he was doing a great job. And I'm sitting there listening to, to Sanderson tell me this and I'm, I'm thinking, and I'm like, you know, obviously I, I believe him because he, he was the one that was there with Ridley, but it just, it, it seems so different to so many other testimonials we have from people who have worked with him. But then you look at the returning casts that he gets. You know, he gets the same people for project after project. The same studios will back him for project after project. There's a real uh, return rate with him. And it makes me think that although we might be hearing more vocally from dissenters through the years, that there really is a sense that he's a great person to work with at the end of the day. If you have like the ability to allow yourself to be kind of subsumed by the strength of his vision, I think. Yeah, that seems, uh, that seems right. Because everyone that the newer interviews, even from the newer movies, like they, they want to work with him again. Like even Fassbender said he's great to work with. So he might be a bit of a, a hard ass, but I guess he's such, he is able to control what he wants in such a way that it's, you know, the, the actors appreciate it. So pivoting back to Alien for a minute, um, we thought it would be fun to sort of uh, unpack some of our favorite moments from the film and talk about them as things that Ridley Scott did that nobody else could have done, especially in 1979. The things that to me, or to us, feel really characteristically Ridley Scott. So I, I was going to jump in first. One of my favorite parts of Alien is how slowly it begins. And um, I think that the, you know, of course we have that, like just that magnificent title sequence, right? And then even after that, the movie doesn't really start. There's the, you know, even before the beacon lights up, there's this wonderful uh, sort of uh, experiential first person, first person, first person <laughs> um, steady cam going through the Nostromo, dipping down. And like we brought up on our commentary from Alien Day a couple years ago, um, you can see wind rustling the papers, which of course doesn't make any sense, but, but it just adds to the expressiveness of that scene. 
Um, you get a sense of the geometries of the Nostromo, so you feel like you're at home in it. And you're put almost voyeuristically in this position where you see what's going on before the crew does, right? You're witnessing this machine come to life. You're witnessing this message that makes no sense, especially the first time you see it. There's like no way to interpret the graphics that you're seeing. I mean, I, I still remember actually the first time I saw that when I was a very little kid because I was so scared because I thought that the helmet was like some kind of robot or something. I was just so confused by what I was watching. Um, and I think that's probably like an apt way to go back to 1979 to think about what audiences felt too. They were like, what is going on? There's no dialogue. There's no music in any real sense. There's sort of ominous sounds. Um, and it's very, 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 very slow. And it is something that to me feels very Ridley because it is it, it immediately dilates the film. It gives it space. It gives it a chance to become like a vessel for us so that we feel like we're inside of it and we're being brought in. Um, just like the early scenes, like Jamie brought up in the previous episode, like that dream sequence in Gladiator, it is a moment of real stillness at a point in terms of the plotting of the film and the editing of the film where you wouldn't expect that to happen, right? Like I would think, so look at Star Wars, how does Star Wars open, for example, A New Hope? The what, what you mean the titles or what the pan down? Yeah, well, yeah. So so let's let's go through the first three minutes of of a new hope. Right, there's an explosive sound. Right, the orchestra has that amazing fanfare. There's a big title crawl, and then there's this pan down. There's starships fighting each other. It is like so bombastic and brilliant. Right, um, and so we're talking about like Ridley Scott getting inspired to make science fiction because of well 2001, but also Star Wars making him feel like it was something that he could do. And then um, his his space movie begins with silence, begins with a vacuum. And to me, that is uh, Ridley very confidently saying from the very beginning, this is not the movie you were expecting. And as soon as you do that, as soon as you can make the audience buy into that vision, you can do anything you want because they will go along with the confidence of that vision. If you can make an artistic choice like that, where you can subvert expectations that early on in a major Hollywood movie, then the whole entire film, people will be thinking, what is he doing here? What, what, what are we doing? Until, which is what really does, until the movie hits a point where it outstrips your ability to predict it or to second guess it. And that is what we see with with Alien. It's what we see with Blade Runner. It's what we see with Black Hawk Down, where you have a slow accumulation of events and tensions that lead to an explosive uh, climax. And then after that, it's just all hell is broken loose and there's no way to keep up with it. And I think that the the roller coaster ride that is the last 30 or 40 minutes of Alien would not work as well as it does if it didn't have so much slowness in the beginning and so much mystery and so much breathing room. And I think that the way it opens is a brilliant example of how Ridley knows how to plot a film and how subverting an audience's expectations allows the audience to uh, be delighted. For me, there's always the one sequence that sticks out because that was what drew me into Alien and the whole sequence when they um, when they enter the derelict, when they discover the dead space jockey and the egg chamber, that's the first time I can remember watching a movie and being transported somewhere else. I'm like, you know, I wanted to be in there with them, exploring it, you know. Um, you, you just felt like you just weren't in 
you know, your your typical movie universe, like whereas you know, you know Star Wars was a fantasy realm, where then you have Star, you know, <clears throat> sorry, where Alien, where you're just this absolute abject world of terror, and you just felt completely transplanted somewhere else, and that was just and the pure terror and uh, wonder of it just blew me away the first time I saw it. I'm like, what the shit is this? I'm like, wow. I'm like, I could use more of this in my life. That to me was really the first, the first instance of you know, really Scott, really um, standing out to me. For me, uh, in terms of scenes, I don't. What I want to talk about is somewhat what you mentioned, Patrick, in terms of overall tone. But my appreciation for who Ridley Scott is or was is whatever um, comes from the type of director that says. No, we're going to play this silent. No, we're going to have five minutes of silence here. And we're only going to hear sounds of this, the planet or sounds of the interior of the derelict or whatever. And that's bold, especially yeah. even, even though films back in the 70s and the 80s were a little bit more, were, were slower, took their time a little bit more. Alien was akin to under the skin or something or something very cerebral or annihilation i know you don't like uh, what's her name uh natalie portman but annihilation has a very methodical yeah slow pace and so does alien you have to either yeah. you're either it's either selling you or it isn't and it's alien sells us and to Yo, annihilation with... sells me every fucking time babe. Oh, yeah, every awesome. time i see that movie <laughs> bitch i'm like i wouldn't change anything about it yeah, I'm for sure. Natalie Portman. <laughs> but... Oh, I loved her in that. That's, uh, but I, I do think that it takes a lot of strength of character. I mean, of course, these people aren't directors for no reason. They're directors because they command attention. Um, I've a little. I'll Just drop. A... In, I'll, I'll drop a name. I've been spending some quality time with um, a gentleman named Louis Leterrier, who has directed the Now You See Me movies, Brothers Grimsby. I've hung out with him at his house. I've been He's re, he's responsible for the new Dark Crystal series. Seen good. Uh, and, you know, he's one of the kindest people I've ever met, but he's a director, so he also commands attention from people. He's really funny. So to... So like, in order Jamie, to, sit down. I know. <laughs> Jamie, get me water. <laughs> to, this is actually the first time I'm talking about it publicly, to be honest with you. Um just because there was a, uh, an NDA on it, but then the Henson Company and Netflix found out early, so it's all over now. Um, but knowing there takes a, it takes a specific type of people, person to have the confidence to be in charge of people, to, be in, to have a vision, to say, no, this is how it's going to go. Over here, you're going to do this. The camera's going to look like this. You're going to set in here. The I'm going to move back or the camera's going to move back and you're going to move with it. And this is how it's all going to go. And we're going to film this for five minutes and it's going to be in silence. So you have to have the support of a studio, the, the producers, the everyone involved. That's the kind of person you have to be. And Ridley Scott criticism or not, that is the type of person he is. He delivers and he, and that was the person who delivered alien. And it's, I just kind of want to, give props to him for that for 
You know, I mean, he wasn't a young, I mean, he was young. Yeah, he was like 42, 40 when he made Alien. Um, but he had, you know, he had lived his life. He had children at that point. Um, but he was also a new feature filmmaker. That was a lot to take on, and he did it. So bravo to you, Ridley Scott. And I want to say, you know, um, I mean, obviously, I, I, I completely agree with you on um, <clears throat> on you know, a, a director being able to command the, the set and command people. But there's also there's, of course, just like there's different personality types in every role. Like there are different types of there's different sort of schools of directors. And I, I feel like there's the school that's kind of the Kubrick model which I would consider Ridley to be a part of, which is very much, it's very deliberate. It's very much chasing a very specific vision. It is a little bit inflexible and it's a little bit uh, more kind of give the actors space to do their thing. I'm going to focus on everything else. And then we're going to rehearse the fuck out of everything. We're going to shoot the hell out of everything. And we're going to stay up late and we're going to keep doing this until we get it right. And uh, it's kind of like the Steve, the Steve jobs approach, right? Where you are sort of an asshole, but the people who agree to work with you believe in the strength of your vision and they allow the, the assholery to go through because they know that you will get the results that they feel like they've signed up to be a part of. Right. There's other directors like, like Denny Villeneuve who are just really great at bringing the best out of diverse teams of people and allowing them to feel like they have a real stake in the creative process and who are, you know, there are many stories of, of directors like Villeneuve, um, changing things on set based on feedback from the actors. You know, there's a lot of directors who will allow script revisions, you know, during, even after they've already shot scenes, they'll say, no, we'll schedule an extra day and go back. And, you know, we'll write a letter to the studio and we'll say, we're sorry, we're going to be spending an extra $45,000 today because we, this actor felt like, um, like her lines were not appropriate to her character. And I agree with her, even though it's just switching three lines out and um, we're going to redo it. Like there are, there are directors like that who can get similarly incredible results, right? But um, it's that's not the director that Ridley Scott is. Now, part of why I'm going into this is because something that Ridley and Kubrick have in common is a background in visual arts in different ways, right? So Kubrick was an incredible photographer. That was something that he was into um, professionally before he got into filmmaking professionally. He did amazing still photography. Um, Ridley, of course, was a you know production artist and designer. He was he went to art school. He was an incredible draftsman, as we've seen in the Ridley Grams, et cetera. And of course, he knew how to shoot a film. He he had a, a background in cinematography, although he wasn't that wasn't what his professional accreditation was at the time. Um, you know, he he was for all intents and purposes a cinematographer, and he did his own camera operation a lot of the time. Um, and so both of them had this really deliberate approach to the framing and composition of the visuals on screen, um, which is very much in the mold of of a director like, you know, like Antonioni, for example, these guys who have a, a really great idea of the geometries of the shot that they're trying to get. And so a, a moment that I want to like just sort of bring up that highlights this to me is back in the part of the movie that I was talking about in the beginning, when you see the hypersleep pods open up and they open up like lotus blossoms. I mean, that just to me is something that um, I, I don't think any director other than maybe Kubrick could have achieved um, so beautifully. And I, I don't mean just in how carefully it's shot and, and how how beautiful it is by how, how he's able to blur the passage of time with those cross dissolves. Um, but I also mean in how brightly lit it is, how it's so uh, it's 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 it feels like waking up from you know, a beautiful nap on a warm afternoon and emerging into the light and your pupils haven't properly adjusted yet. And you're just sort of bathed in this refulgent splendor. 
And it's just so not what the rest of the movie is, right? Like, it's just not what Alien is about. It's not like the dominant feel you get from Alien. But there's a moment early on where you bask in that. And Ridley, because of his attention to how to light, how to frame, how to properly photograph films, um, really just nails that, even when it's not something that is sort of his forte, when, when it doesn't fit what he's doing really well for the rest of the movie. It still is that effective in, in a moment that is... I think in a lesser film would have been forgettable. I mean, in in a lesser film, it would have just been an establishing shot. You know, in the script, that's all it is. It doesn't go into this detail about what the pods look like, how slowly it unfurls. It doesn't, you know, give any hints to Goldsmith on how he's going to score it, which of course is brilliant. Um, but really, just makes that moment uh, a real transformative moment of beauty. I think, and and I, I can't see anybody else other than perhaps Kubrick doing that. Although I don't think Kubrick had the emotional intensity that. Ridley had. And I think Ridley knew that we had to fall in love with these characters early on to appreciate what happens to them and gave them gave us a real chance to witness them coming to life and witness the transference of the voyeuristic aspect that we had for the first few frames of the film into this, okay, now we're the sort of omniscient um, you know, uh observer of the events unfolding and and we're not just spying on them. It's just it's a, a very brilliant move, I think. Jamie, just circle back what you said earlier is one thing that um really scott definitely got me to appreciate um slow burn films because when i first saw 2001 i was i was too young to really get it like i remember watching with my old man and we i dug it but i don't know what the fuck it was and i saw alien and i realized when i originally saw it i had gained an appreciation for those quiet moments letting it sink in let the movie breathe you really get to appreciate it and it's something that i don't think is done enough in almost anything like i'm a huge sports fan and nowadays the broadcasts are so inundated with so much bullshit let the game breathe yeah i've noticed that with games too let us appreciate the beauty of the sport the beauty of the movie that's we don't need all this extra you know, distractions and nonsense, just, you can really, you get more of a sense for the movie's world and characters if you just let everyone just take a quiet moment and sink it in. And that's one thing I've really got to thank for, his first director watch a movie and go, huh, you know what? This works. Like, I saw Blade Runner really, really, I know, late in my science fiction uh, love affair, which I know is strange, but I had just never came across it. And then I think I purchased it on sale one day for um, like five or 10 bucks. I finally sat down and watched it. And though it took me years to really get an appreciation for the characters, but the world itself and the way he just lets it, you draw it into it, it's, it's, it's phenomenal. It's really no one else. I mean, he created two sci-fi genres with Blade Runner and Alien. I mean, he said, does the world have been copied? ad nauseum since those two movies were released and there's no I don't know what else to say it's just you can't beat that one thing that I find uh, interesting and without getting into the politics of Ridley Scott because as we know just to briefly address this the fandom of Alien the Alien series tends to still be a little be a little bit or a lot of bit divisive I think things are sort of cooled down but I don't think everyone is on the same page you have factions unfortunately you have safe spaces uh, like Building Better Worlds which is our our official discussion group on Facebook. Go check it out. It's awesome. 
But there was a certain type of film being made in the late 60s, 70s, 80s, and probably early 90s. And those films took their time. What we would what what we call art house films these days, like Annihilation um, and or Under the Skin and several other films or even um, Ex Machina, which is a fantastic film that I have very complicated relationship with. Um, these films are called art house films now, but they're all of them do the same types of things that were being done in the 80s when audiences i wouldn't say audiences are different were different because i think audiences are still as astute and smart and willing to kind of accept what you give them as long as you're you know playing to their intelligence and not to the lowest common denominator what i think is affecting films these days um is sort of the 24-hour news cycle social media where everything's just going 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 oh a terrible thing happens on to the next thing terrible things happens on to the next thing oh look this on to the next thing on to the next thing and i feel like film studio films are com- they completely reflect that idea where it's just just move on let's keep going let's keep going let's keep going there's no time to breathe but i feel like life is like that these days with the you know, with social media sort of being in our lives for around 10 years now going on in terms of when, well, I'd say 10 years because I remember I first got on Facebook in 2008. Um, Bitch, I, re- I was on there in 2004. Are you serious? Wow. Yeah, I was one of the first schools Nerds, on to be on it. Nerds. <laughs> Nerds. Uh, and I hate it. <laughs> but I really strongly believe that what we love in the original alien films, what we love about Ridley Scott, um, what th- those elements, the, the take giving things time to breathe. Cause also to your point, Dave, about like sports and uh, you have the, what do you call those people who announce, who talk over the, the game and they give you the play by play. What are those people called? Announcers? Commentators? Commentators. Announcers, broadcasters, yeah, play okay. guys. Like they reflect entertainment today as well where where it is like you're saying it's non-stop it's just like talk 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 to, like yeah. shut the fuck up Honestly. and let us watch the game talk talk graphic overlays cutaways yep. like yep. just let us watch the oh game. my god just and breathe it in like the fucking chirons it's... on the bottom too like it like it if, if you don't want to watch cable news you still have to if you want to watch a fucking football game because you're still yeah. getting all the updates on the bottom the whole time of the yeah. stock market shit I'm like oh yeah. my god yeah it's it's, uh, it's a barrage it's it, a barrage of info too much it's like let us just soak it in yeah. we have these gorgeous tvs let us you know feel like we're there i don't need your gibbering jabbering and nonsense every 45 seconds totally and I think the difference is, I'll let you go. I'll, let me just finish this, Patrick, and you can yeah, yeah, yeah. The difference is today, just to kind of, again, to kind of touch the subject of maybe not just Ridley Scott, but like the films that we're seeing today from studio, from major studios, mostly they're superhero films or their remakes or their reboots. We're seeing very little huge studio risks on, you know, there's there's a couple of things here and there like Ad Astra's coming out with Brad Pitt, which looks fucking amazing. I can't yeah, wait to see that. Good. But we, there was a time in film history um, back when effects were still this new thing that were being pioneered back in the 80s and the early 90s and the late 70s where it everything felt fresh. These days, there's... 
which is funny because these days what's feeling fresh now are practical effects, something that has been around since, you know, the beginning of filmmaking. The one of time. So I feel like what we're responding to or, or a lot of the films that we're seeing now that aren't doing very well is because they're more of a reflection of where we are socially and not where art is or what art could be. And hopefully that makes some type of sense. Yeah, yes. sure. It, it makes it makes sense. Yeah. I, I think that... Um, Perhaps part of what you're noticing, though, too, is that like a lot of these films that um, are coming out that are still more in the vein of the, of older, more artsy movies, like you know the things that you know would have once been made by Ingmar Bergman or something. Like those 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 movies are still coming out, but they're coming out on subsidiary labels, like they're coming out on Searchlight or they're coming out on yeah, on, like on, on a smaller independent imprint. releases. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, A two four alone is yes. like is putting out constant shit that fits into that category, and they're making a profit on it, and the, those movies are doing well. The reality is, is we're just inundated as a cultural landscape with so much shit going on, and there are huge blockbusters that are making a ton of money. But but again, like go to the '30s, go to the RKO movies, like th- those things. I mean, they still hold box office records, and those were all the same fucking four swashbuckling films, just told with you know airplanes or horses or Egyptian gods or like the same like three different plot devices. So although it wasn't a franchise per se, it was still like kind of in some ways dumb movie making that was just done really daringly and was really exciting and was purely escapist. You know, I think the reality is, is that throughout history, whenever there's a time where people are inundated and overwhelmed escapist entertainment will do really well. And I think that, um, and, and that's why like, I, I have no problem at all with, especially the MCU. I think that that's just wonderful escapist entertainment that's really well crafted. I think, I know you're burned out on it, but um, I, I know a lot of people who aren't. And I think that um, it, when it works well, it works Boycott. really well. Well, well, but I think that there is a fun. I don't think that it's not allowing room for other movies to be made. I think those movies just aren't being made on the same studio. I think they're being made on subsidiary imprints or on independent studios, and and those movies are being seen. They're just not commanding as much of the landscape because every day there's a thousand news stories. Yeah, but you can't deny that. But you guys can't deny though that studios, the big studios are risk averse and that instead of oh, putting, they, have to, they have subsidiary, they, they have independent quote unquote independent labels to be, take risks with, you know, like they don't, they don't have to take big risks. Yeah. I just, I just remember even as far as two or two years ago, I was going to the movie theater once a week, seeing new films, things that I thought, thought were interesting. I don't go to the movie theater anymore. Barely. There's just not much. I mean, I saw midsummer, um, a couple Don't weeks ago. Oh my god, that movie is face. fucked I up. I, won't. I would never. I would never. Samar, Whatever. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can't is even really? talk about Redditary without. It is. Yeah. 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 yeah to say Midsommar. Yeah. Well, you, you Midsommar. Know who, you know who Midsommar was, makes you know who Ari Hereditary was, uh, look like child's play. <laughs> you, you know who he was inspired by chiefly as a filmmaker? Ingmar fucking Bergman. Really? Okay. I can Second time he's come up in this, and that's because I wanted. I had a point before we got into this conversation that I wanted to bring up about something David said, and then, and then we can go back into this conversation about how the world sucks now. But um, but I wanted to bring up that I, I think that the the pacing <laughs> that you're seeing with Ridley Scott that feels kind of transformational with Alien, what it was happening, of course, elsewhere, but it was largely in European art house films. It was in Bergman movies. It was in it was in you know Tarkovsky, right? I mean, Stalker came out the same year. Yes, came, yes, yes. I agree. Movement. I agree. The difference, though, the difference is that Alien brought. I'm not saying single handedly, but Alien 
was a great vehicle for bringing that kind of sensibility, that cerebral slow approach to a major Hollywood movie that became also a water cooler film. And that to me is a yes. big difference, right? Alien was a movie that had, for one thing, one of like the great scares ever filmed. And that was something that if you saw it, just like a couple of scenes in Hereditary that I won't get into because I don't I, Well, Dave, Dave, you've seen it. Jamie, you and you saw Hereditary. Of course I've seen it. I talk about it nonstop. Yeah, yeah, of course yeah, I've yeah. seen Hereditary. I was, right, so, I was so watching... Sorry, go. Well, just so like for example, when she when her fucking head gets ripped off in the car, like that is a moment <laughs> where it, I mean, it, if you know somebody else who's seen it, you will talk about that movie. Y'all right? haven't yeah, seen nothing moment. yet. Oh man, Samar. But listen, so what what I'm saying is that Alien took like that magnified by a thousand with with the chestburster sequence, and it became um, like a cultural thing that people wanted to talk about. But to talk about it, they had to see it. And to see it, they had to experience this very kind of European art house aesthetic that was not very popular in Hollywood film at the time, although film aficionados were super into it. And I think that that strain of slow cerebral filmmaking has um, never left us. I really don't. And I think, you know, it's not, um, I, I, I think like it's not a coincidence that, Jamie, you brought up Alex Garland twice, who Dave is obsessed with. I know that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he should write yeah. a movie. I think it's it like those movies are still being made by people like Alex Garland, by people like Robert Eggers, by people like Ari Aster, by people who are doing these really wonderful, slow burn, scary, thoughtful movies. Right? They're still out there. Well, um, I think uh, they're I, just not getting I, that much of the news. Cycle. You might be mischaracterizing what I mean. And I, when I say, I think maybe just using the term "space to breathe" because there was a lot of huge films back in the 70s and the 80s that were huge big blockbuster films that could breathe a little bit more and it's not to say that yes those films are being made but I also think there's a couple things in play big studios are also battling against people staying home watching Netflix or Amazon you took the words right out of my mouth so they yep. they have to get people in the theater so how do you get people in the theater more superheroes more fast and furious so I agree with you that Yes, those films are being made, but my contention is more original films were being released in the 80s and the 90s and the 70s and before. Uh, more more uh, risks were taken on original films, and there was more of a patience for them. There were like I just think of films like Flight of the Navigator, or you know, which isn't this particularly good film, but it had some quiet spaces in there. Or Tron, the original Tron, which is fucking amazing, but it had. The, it had time where you just felt like you weren't being rushed through the movie. When these days, I go to the movie theater, for the most part, I feel like I'm being rushed through it all. Um, whether it's Marvel films, uh, to some degree. I mean, Winter Soldier, I would say, is pretty, takes its oh, time. Uh, but, yeah. uh, I, and, there, and there are other films, like I felt like Man of Steel was really awesome, and it took its time. Yep. And I, I actually think it's a masterpiece. I really do. I think it's a fantastic film. Thanks. But I, I, but I don't think I, I think that there's something to what you're saying, Patrick, but I also don't think it's like, oh, nothing's changed. It's all the same. It's just no, there is a change in the system. The system has fundamentally changed. And the only reason why I'm passionate about this, this sort of line is I see I watch movies every fucking day. And I know you watch a lot of movies. I know everybody watches a lot of movies, but like <laughs> I'm watching movies all the time, whether it's streaming, whether it's in the theater all the time, even some of the films that maybe aren't great, I'm watching to say, well, what was this like? Like, even Predator was shit, but I wanted to go see it. Like, 
there is a, a, a paradigm shift happening in, in the studio and it's being reported all over. And these studios like Disney who could make whatever fucking film they want to, what are they doing? They're remaking every fucking cartoon they've ever released because number one copyrights number two it's a built-in audience number three risk aversion every studio is doing it because but here's the thing is that death. they're making but but no but they're making money that's what it's not, of they're course not they're making they're money yes. they're doing it because yes. they're a business and they're but making money at it yeah but it's also risk it aversion. breaking box office records yeah but it's no, risk but, aversion but, too it's but, easy but money. it's always been risk aversion i mean any business that's done well over time has averted risk by working on things that make money that return to their investors right? It's a capitalist system. I don't like it. I mean, I, I totally agree with you 100% that, that everything is so fucking franchised at this point that it's it's laughable. It's crazy. But that being said, those are the movies that people go and see and that make money. And at the end of the day, they're still putting money in the pockets of the film studios who are able to produce an ex machina by getting filmmakers funded and getting projects made under different labels. And I think that like, I would rather see Blander movies do well as long as we still get room for real artistic work to happen. I feel like if if we just allow the whole industry to collapse, then where are we? You know. And at this point, that's that's what I think would happen if we got rid of all these franchised things and, and we got rid of anything that were that was kind of a safe bet. Is people wouldn't go to the movies anymore because we all have 4K televisions, we all have sound systems at home. Well, that's happening we have right a now. Anyways. Streaming platforms. That's happening well, right but now. It is, and it's not though, because if you look at box office returns, the industry is actually doing great right now. Well, but of course it is. They're ra- superheroes. Yeah, but that's what I'm saying. That's why they're making money, right? That, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying that it's it's impossible to talk about this without talking about the business decisions that are driving it. Well, I, it's I not agree like wholeheartedly. Rate of original thoughts. Yeah, it's that they need to make money. Like they're they're financing movies that are costing way more and than they ever had. And art is that. suffering because of it. That's all I'm yeah. saying. I'm, like, I'm let's send t- a Homelander after both of you. <laughs> oh my God, that series <laughs> is so good. But just let's just oh talk about ex, ex Machina for a minute. That's a phenomenal movie. It is. It is. It's amazing. Production budget yeah. fifty million. How much did it make worldwide total? Thirty six. It didn't Steve make. Pepper. It didn't even. It was a flop. I, so yes, these movies are being made. They're not doing well, which is why they're not being made. Um, but they're not doing well because studios are like, nope, someone else could make it. We're making X Men or yeah, those movies are shit. Uh, yeah, or, yeah. Don't even talk about yeah. that. We're making That's you know. Cool. I don't know. Avengers 18, because there's money. And I'm not saying that there's not a, a time and a space for tent poles for, for, um, for superhero films. I mean, there are plenty of superhero films that I love. I think winter soldier is one of the best superhero films I've ever seen. I loved wonder woman. I loved man of steel. There are parts of Batman versus Superman that I thought were fucking amazing and the end killed it. It's not to say, I'm not saying that all these films are shit. What I am saying is, Original films being funded by like 20th Century Fox, Warner Brothers, DreamWorks, all the big ones, all of those are being pushed to the side. And where they're getting their funding from now is if it's not A24 on Aperna, it's Netflix, it's Amazon uh, or Hulu because studios are not investing in these movies anymore. And even the movies that maybe Fox Searchlight did, which Fox Searchlight is going away, by the way, um, or you had Miramax and they went away and then you had um, uh, the Weinstein company and they went away as they should, but whatever. But what I'm saying is these, even these small production, like independent production houses that get films made, they're disappearing. They are disappearing. And 
Yeah, but get... where are they going? They're going somewhere, though. Jay. They're going where to streaming going? is where they're going. Yes, exactly. Right. So it's still happening. What I'm saying is the art is still being made. But it's know? not as much as exposure, to be honest with you. Like a lot of people say that when films, if you're, you know, films like there's a film with uh, Ansel El- Elgort, and I can't remember the name. It's a science fiction film. They came on Netflix and it was fantastic. It wasn't like the best movie of all time, but it was refreshing. And it was, I think it might have been directed by um, Andrew Nichol, who did Gattaca. It dropped on Netflix and it disappeared. No yeah. one talks about that movie. And that's part of it is it, it's exposure. These mm-hmm. films aren't exposed to the kind of promotion that would, might help them do well. I mean, and again, I know that this conversation is circular and there's not like an ending to it, but I, I'm right. sort of mourning the loss of authentic voices being released by major studios. It's just not happening anymore. But, you know, it's funny, you bring up Annapurna Productions or Annapurna Pictures and like, like that's an example, you know, they put out great stuff, right? They did, they did Her, they did, um, you know, Phantom Thread. Uh, that's found, that's founded by the daughter of the guy who started Oracle, you know, like yep. it, it's yep. all at the end of the day, it's all people. I mean, look at fucking, I mean, a great example of this is Leica, who I think always puts out, even though their, their most recent film wasn't like great, as far as I'm concerned, everything else that they've done has been masterpiece level. It is really hard filmmaking. It's really rigorous filmmaking. It's really detailed filmmaking. It's very old world filmmaking. And I don't mean that just in terms of the techniques that they're using. I mean that in terms of their approach to craftsmanship in the in their marketing. It's very uh, traditional and very um, and very original, right? It's all new IPs that they're creating. Um, I mean, they wouldn't exist without Nike. Like that, that's the that's the reality is that this is all dependent on having business models that function properly. So at the end of the day, I like the idea that people are going into movie theaters. I think it's good for our industry, the industry that we love and the industry that we talk about all the time, the industry that, you know, raised us into the people that we are in a lot of ways. So like, I'm, you know, I'm okay with it. Do I wish that we could be in a world where we could be seeing consistently new non-franchised stories that got people in seats? I mean, you know, Avatar did that, right? Like it, it, it's happened. It's just, it's, it's getting harder and harder to do that. And um, and I and I really think it will take a, a transformational industry shift, and that shift will be either the destruction of the movie theater model as we know it, which I would I would not like, but I think would give a lot of um, you know priority to streaming services, et cetera, or um, it'll it'll change it'll, it'll it'll have to be just societies in a place where they're ready to take more risks and you know. Um, but that being said, this has nothing to do with Ridley Scott anymore, so we should probably try to switch <laughs> well, back around a little. That bit. escalated quickly. Yeah, um, I, but but you know, but it's interesting because Ridley Scott, of course, has been there through all of this, right? Like he he was um, he's been through all of these different uh, eras of filmmaking, and in a way, he's mastered all of them, right? Like he has been there since the dawn of the cerebral Hollywood blockbuster. He's been there through the uh, you know effects triumphs of the 1980s and this whole birth of these like really quirky, innovative, practical effect driven visions. Um, you know, he was there in the nineties with these, you know, with the road movies, et cetera. And then he's been there now with these big tentpole releases that make a shitload of money. Like Prometheus made an incredible amount of money. Right. Um, I wouldn't and say are incredible, very, but it turned a profit, uh, a healthy, a somewhat healthy profit for sure. Yeah. Pretty healthy profit. But well, I'm not saying it was avatar, but what I'm saying is that like, he's been there through all these different things and he's, uh, really mastered all of them. And I think it's, it's amazing to look back and see, you know, although there have been highs and lows for him, the staying power that he has had and the fact that he's now in his eighties and he's working harder than it seems like he ever has, you know, I mean, we didn't even talk, 
and we, I guess we don't really even have to, but um, his brother Tony, like that, that's a, a huge thing um, as well. And I feel like, for one thing, I, I think that he was an underrated filmmaker. I think some of his stuff is really, really good. Um, Top Gun being among them, but also, uh, what was the movie he did with Denzel Washington with the train? Oh, that was um... Unstoppable. No, that's a good movie. No. Yeah, that's a really good movie. Yeah, Unstoppable, right? With Denzel Washington, wasn't Man on Fire? No, that's another movie that Denzel Washington was in. Hang that's on. A, that's a great movie. I'm going to look it up. Oh, no, Tony Scott did do Man on Fire, but also, wait, hang on. Oh, where the train is, is... I don't... Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, he did that, too. So so those are two Denzel Washington movies with, that Tony Scott directed. Um, and Asapo has Chris Pine. That's a fucking great movie, too. I mean, he, he, he did some really good work. Um, but, of course, he died, you know, shortly after that. And uh, under really um, traumatic circumstances, I think, and and Ridley didn't even miss a beat, you know, and that goes to show you how driven this man is, that he lost his brother to what I believe was was ruled a suicide, um, and he didn't even slow down, you know. Yeah, he's just, I mean, he's just yeah. a machine, and that's what happened he is when, right before Blade Runner. <laughs> right before Blade Runner, what, uh, his other brother had perished. I don't know the yeah. circumstances of that. And he said he took Blade Runner because he was in a dark place and you can sort of see it. And uh, I don't know how his, how Tony Scott's death affected him. Of course, I'm sure it affected him horribly because they were close. Scott Free was their production company. It's still Ridley Scott's production company, but it's a lot to take on. Um, so for him to have gone through what he's gone through as a director, as an artist, and to still be pushing out films I and mean, it seems like it sort of gets lost in his work to kind of deal with that depression or that trauma or loss for sure but uh, whatever the case is whether we enjoy the films that he is releasing or not here's to him for you know still going still doing it yeah i think having spent now you know a few hours diving into him and not just looking at him as the director of, of alien and of these movies but as a as a person you know, who existed uh, at a time and place and with a career and with aspirations and with hopes and as somebody who has really forged uh, a life in film, I just have just the most immense respect for him, you know? And he has brought so much uh, joy to my life personally. Uh, so many of my favorite films or the films that are like in my top 20 of all time have been directed by him or have been produced by him. And uh, And I feel really lucky that you know, we get to live in a world that has Ridley Scott in it. And I, I have no doubt that he still has shit stuffed up his sleeve um, that will be coming for us. And I can't wait to see what he does because he's, you know, he's might be in his 80s, but he's producing at the rate of a 20 year old, you know, so we'll see what the future brings. It was nice to hear some stuff at Ridley Scott. I did not know. Um, I got some movies I want to add to my list. That's for sure. Um, other than that, I mean, it's. He's been one of my favorite for years. It's never a dull moment with uh, Sir Ridley Scott, and um, thankful for it. And with All that, right. we will say adieu and goodbye. So thank adieu. <laughs> so thanks everyone for listening. Uh, this will wrap our two-parter on Ridley Scott. Uh, stay tuned for more episodes in our series that we're working on. Also, a couple of notes. If you listen to our Shoulder of Orion podcast, uh, we are throwing an event in downtown Los Angeles 
in November, on November 13th, actually, which is a Wednesday. It's The event is called Los Angeles, November 2019, an event. And it is sort of starring Charles de la who is the editor and producer of Blade Runner, The Final Cut. Paul M. Salmon, who is a historian and author of Future Noir, The Making of Blade Runner. And, of course, star one of the stars of Blade Runner, Joanna Cassidy, who played Zora in the film. And it's going to be essentially like a six-hour event. First two hours are a discussion panel. The last hour is a Q&A. And uh, we'll have a private screening at the end of the event. So there's going to be a lot going on. We're steps away from the Bradbury building, which is where the original Blade Runner was filmed. It's going to be a great event. Come on down. And oh, if you go to BladeRunnerPodcast.com, you will find a link to buy tickets if you're interested, um, which will take you to our Eventbrite page. You can buy tickets there. So check it out. And as of as of the release of this episode, you will have like a week to get tickets at the discounted presale rate. <laughs> so so this would be the time to do it. Um, and I would just say that if you have listened now to you know us talk about Ridley Scott for three and a half hours, and you still have questions about him, there will be people <laughs> there in the room with us who have spent a lot of time firsthand with him and will be uh, more than willing to, uh, to talk to you about it. So, so come and bring your questions and bring your uh, appetite because we're going to eat and drink and be merry and talk about film. All right. Thanks guys. For more on Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast, please visit perfectorganism.com. Perfect Organism is available for listen or download through Podbean, iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, and Spotify. If you'd like to support the show, please visit perfectorganism.com forward slash support. Thank you.